guys, how are we? Can someone give a thumbs up or just something that I know the sound and everything is coming through okay? Switch the microphone, it should be better sound now. All good, thank you, Celine. Perfect, let's give about 30 more seconds and we kick off. So week four kicking off the toughest week of training. Be some sore bodies this week if they're not sore already. Right. I will get started. And if other people come along, that's fair enough. Uh, a few questions in this week. So I'll just share my screen and we can get started. Perfect and good. So to get into it this week, first question uh, that kind of came in, a generic enough question, but I think an important one, and that's how can I improve my recovery? Because uh, I think a lot of people are, are quite sore this week and starting to feel the uh, effects of the training build up. So recovery is, is, is quite complex, but simple at the same time in terms of what goes on within the body can be very complex and people try to overcomplicate it when it comes to recovery, but the, the principles are actually quite straightforward. So this, this graphic was something myself and a colleague, Lee Bell of mine down in Sheffield Hallam Uni uh, created about two years ago now uh, to kind of conceptualize what are the key elements of recovery and we call it the fatigue recovery status because that's we're essentially always going to be along a spectrum of being fatigued and tired or being fully recovered. And with training, you're always going to sit somewhere along the spectrum between those two extremes. So we kind of try to visualize what are the main things and the bigger, bigger the circle is, the more important or high priority that is. So when it comes to recovery, appropriate training load is, is the first thing that you're doing the right amount of training and not doing too much because even if you have everything else right if you're doing too much training, more than you what you can recover from, by definition, you're, you're never going to be recovered and you're uh, overtraining. But once that's in, in check, sleep, nutrition, and stress management, the, the boring stuff essentially of eating right, sleeping right, and limiting your own personal stress, they're the big things that are going to affect your recovery. Active and novel recovery methods, so they're stuff like your foam rollers, your ice baths, your compression garments, all those novelty things that get sold as recovery modalities they can have a, a a good effect but they're not as important and they can't and uh, shouldn't take priority over good nutrition good sleep and then at the bottom individual beliefs and placebo um what we actually believe 
has a strong effect on the physiology and what we perceive. So for example, if you believe something is going to make you feel better, even if it's not actually doing anything in your body physiologically or to your muscle, you're still going to perceive a benefit there if you believe it's going to help. It's a lot like how some alternative medicines work, work through the power of placebo. But the big things are sleep, nutrition, and, and stress management. So in terms of nutrition, just to, to go over, you probably have this bet into you now at this point, but obviously you need to be eating enough calories to, to fuel your training and to fuel everything going on. But protein is the big macronutrient that most people struggle to get enough with. And it's essential for everything we do in our body requires protein, essentially. So poor recovery is equal to poor progress in the gym and poor performance overall. So it's going to hamper everything you can. If you're not recovering well, you can't train hard and you can't progress. So in terms of how much protein you should have, somewhere between kind of one and a half to two grams per day per kilogram of body weight. So if you weigh 50 kilograms, you're probably somewhere between 75 to 100 grams per day. If you weigh 100 kilograms, you're probably between 150 to 200 grams per day. Sleep now is arguably kind of the most valuable recovery tool we have and for health. So sleep affects everything we do in terms of the adaptations, whether we grow muscle effectively or performance or injury risk or cognition, even food choices. So we know if we are under, if we're not sleeping properly, that we actually tend to crave sugar more and our willpower is reduced. So it has a knock-on effect in so many different areas. Um, people tend to, in my experience, focus too much on the quantity of sleep to get and neglect the quality because two people can spend eight hours in bed but have completely different sleep quality. One person can sleep soundly for the whole eight hours. The other person could be in a light sleep and sorry, pardon me, in, in light sleep, someone there, yeah, um, in light sleep and being disruptive. So they lead to two very different outcomes. So, in terms of you should focus to get enough time in bed, most of us probably need somewhere between seven to nine hours per night, but the quality of that sleep should be um, really a focus in as well. So, basic kind of sleep hygiene, what we call it, how you improve the quality of your sleep. Our body's like a regular sleep and waking time. It likes a nice, steady circadian rhythm. So try go to bed at the same time. Try get up at the same time, even on the weekends. Now, obviously, we live in a, a practical world, but we have a thing called social jet lag, and that's where our sleep cycle shifts at the weekend because we're going out and we're in a different routine, and then Monday we're wrecked because our body's trying to readjust. So if you can, try have a regular sleep and waking time. Caffeine will be pretty much still active in our system about six hours after we ingest it. Um, so try to avoid caffeine up from six hours before bedtime. Try to avoid screens one to two hours before bed. That's something that none of us will probably do. Most of us will still probably check the phone, but at least try turn on night mode on the phone, or you can get glasses that may help uh, block the, the blue light. Your room then, your environment, keep the room cool. You don't want it too warm for room. And then attempt to limit your psychological stress. So by meditating or journaling or whatever helps you unload and not overthink um, at night. There are just some simple tips to hopefully try to improve your sleep quality. And then the, the fancy stuff, the foam rollers, the ice bats, the compression garments you can see here, the Normatex, uh, they're just simply boots that inflate and compress the muscle. 
they potentially can work, um, but they shouldn't be your go-to in terms of, it shouldn't be, okay, my nutrition is poor, my sleep is poor, but since I'm doing ice baths or foam rolling, it makes up for it. It's just simply not the case. They have a place, but um, they can't take priority over the big pillars. So it's just something to be aware of. Generally, when it's a recovery methods, I like stuff that is more active. So, you know, active recovery in terms of maybe yoga, light exercise, something and still doesn't tend to actually make want to be moved. Moving is what will make us fear is. Um, yeah. So with that, I just to build on the back of that question. So when we are training, obviously we're collecting data and you collect it in your apps and your spreadsheets. But some people are asking about, you know, what what kind of factors should we be considering or can affect our training and our progress? So I just want to go through some of the options that we collect, say, with, with athletes and we would monitor because to give us some insight, and especially it gives us an idea of when we can um, push because, as we said, with the training, we're building up now. We're in week four. We're in the tough week of training, and next week we want to back off. So we've done what we call a planned deload, and that's where – from the start, we said we're going to train for four weeks and then we'll take a week off. You can also do reactive deloads. That's where you don't take a week off or easy until your body feels like it needs it. So what kind of metrics could you monitor if you wanted to go on the reactive side? How do you know that you're maybe pushing a bit too hard? So these are just some of the metrics it's good to be aware of. Obviously, your body weight, first and foremost, a good idea to have an idea how your body weight fluctuates um, because it's going to go up and down day to day. Um, and especially if you are not on contraceptives, you're going to, the menstrual cycle tends to have a big effect on fluid dynamics and can lead to fluctuations in body weight. So that's why for men, we can kind of compare week to week. For women, we compare cycle to cycle, the same week and the same phase when we monitor body weight. Sleep, as I said, is something you want to uh, monitor because if you're having a bad week in the gym and you say, oh, I must be training too much, but then you're looking like, well, I've actually had a really poor week of sleep. That could be what's causing your training to be poor rather than um, anything else. So let's sleep. Oh, what am I after doing? I'm after dragging something over. Apologies. Perfect. Uh, step count is another good metric that we tend to measure with a lot of people. Uh, a few reasons that I actually think it's a good idea to be aware of your step count. If you're trying to lose weight and diet, we have something that we call adaptive thermogenesis. So that basically means that when we are losing weight, our body wants to kind of hold on to that weight. Um, it doesn't, the body doesn't really like to gain weight or lose weight. Um, it likes to stay stable. But when we start dieting to lose weight, our body actually tries to slow our weight loss by downregulating our activity levels. So we tend to feel a bit more lethargic, feel a bit lazy, and you tend to see step count come down if you don't monitor it. So people will talk about, well, I'm eating less, but I'm not losing weight. And then when you dig into some of the data, you can see, well, you're not moving as much as you usually do. So you're not in the deficit that you thought you were in. So having step counts and having a target to hit every day is probably a good idea there. And especially through those times of, say, when you're trying to lose weight, it's a good idea to keep your step count high and consistent. Energy levels is another thing that we monitor. Just simply, 
every day saying out of five or out of 10, how much energy do I feel I have? And all these data you can just write down in your journal or keep in a spreadsheet. And then over weeks and months, you start to see patterns and you learn about your own body of what kind of training works well for you, what kind of foods work well for you and what routine works well. And you kind of get a better training process then over time. Stress, it's a good idea to rate your, your psychological and emotional stress on a scale every now and again and try to consider what is causing your stress. Um, and then taking the stoicism, can you control it? Can you put strategies in place to alleviate the stress? If it's stuff outside of your control, well, then maybe uh, try not to worry about it, which I acknowledge is much easier said than done. Soreness with our muscles, actually rating soreness can be a good idea. Um, because all of a sudden, if one week you're just far, far more sore than um, a week, any of the other weeks of training, you might say, okay, maybe I've pushed a little too much now. I've been training for five, six weeks hard. It's time to back off because my body isn't recovering the way it usually does. Libido is a big one um, that can actually be a good to uh, mantra. And again, all these are just subjective ratings of where's my libido at compared to where it normally is. And you could rate it out on a scale of one to five or one to 10. But oftentimes when we see people go into an overtrained state or to push too hard or too aggressive with their diet, libido can, can suffer as a, as a consequence. Um, and uh, in both men and women, if body fat levels get too low and the extreme end of stuff, it can have a hormonal effect and libido can be affected then as well. So it can be something to monitor as well and keep in mind. Uh, heart rate, if you wear a Fitbit or whatever, um, monitoring your heart rate and especially your daily, your morning heart rate. What is it when you wake up in the morning? And if you're getting fitter over time, you'll see it come down. If all of a sudden it starts creeping up that one week, okay, my heart rate is on average much higher than what it nor pardon me, normally is in the morning. Well, that can be an indication that your body's a bit stressed, a bit overtired or maybe illness is, is coming down the way. So it can be an early warning sign to back off a little bit. Nutritional adherence. Again, uh, I would often get clients straight out of one to five. How good were you at sticking to what you had planned this week? And if someone is really good most weeks and then all of a sudden just, no, it's, it's out the window, I'm low this week, that can be an idea. Okay, maybe they need to back off a little bit. They've been pushing hard for long enough. Um, blood results if you're someone who gets regular blood tests we can tell a lot from those and most people probably should be getting a blood test at least once a year to check on some of your risk factors bowel movements this i don't mean to be crass but this is something we would often track with different um, clients and very simply i've had people who i think we've all been there when say you're trying to lose weight and then all of a sudden for three four days you think you're doing really good. You're sticking to your, your nutrition plan and the weight is just not dropping. And you're wondering what's going on. A lot of time we can get disheartened and pack it all in and go off the wagon and just say, well, feck this. I, I, did, I did what I was supposed to and it didn't work. And then we eat all around of us. But a lot of times if we, especially if it's a big change in your diet, say if you didn't have a great diet, then all of a sudden I'm eating a lot more fruit, a lot more veg, you're also taking in a lot more fiber and this can affect your digestion. So a lot of people, when they move to a healthier diet, you can actually get constipation for a few days. Um, it is not untypical. And again, people get frustrated. Oh, the scales have jumped a kilo, even though I'm dieting really well. 
and then you talk to them, well, have you gone to the toilet? And then the, the light bulb goes on, well, no, actually, I haven't really had any bowel movements in a couple of days. And you're like, okay, so you haven't gained any body fat. You've probably lost some. You just, because this new fiber, your body's taking a little time to adjust. You just need to go to the toilet. And then, like magic, goes to the toilet, down a couple of kilos. Um, so just something to be aware of. And then, of course, the mentor cycle that we spoke about in a previous week, getting a good idea of if you are someone that um, is not taking contraceptives, that has what we call a kind of a eumenorrheic menstrual cycle, is your performance affected at different phases? Are you different in the luteal to the follicular phase? Uh, and just getting to understand your own body uh, cycle to cycle and taking little notes and see if you can identify patterns. So all those kind of metrics that I talked about there, they're all just stuff that you can monitor if you wish, or at least just something that can be in your mind that if all of a sudden, you know, you come to a week of training that you're not feeling great in the gym or you, your scales isn't moving, it doesn't mean that, oh, I've trained too hard or my body doesn't want to lose weight. There are so many different factors that can influence how you feel or what the weight on the scale is or your body composition week to week. So we tend to, as humans, jump to the extremes and, you know, throw our ties out of pram and say Feck it, the diet doesn't work or whatever it may be. But usually it's one of these other factors that's going on. So just something to be aware of with some of those. Um, so that's that question. Another question I got, I woke up with a dead arm that lasted four days, couldn't lift my arm. Any exercise or stretches to get over this faster? So it, it depends on how the dead arm was caused. If it's just from sleeping on it awkwardly, there's not a whole lot that can, can be done really. It's movement. You'd be surprised how many um, even top level athletes that sleep a bit awkwardly and strain a muscle or do something. It, it's actually not that uncommon. So with this, anything like that, that's just kind of a, a dead arm or a bang or even a light strain, movement is key. It's about just getting the, the area moving, getting blood flow going. And over time, then the, the pain should start to subside. Granted that there's no actual damage done there. If it's only a little strain or you slept awkwardly on it, just try and move as much as possible. Just keep, if it's the arm, whatever way it is, even with your right arm or whatever it is, just lift up and down and just try slowly to move it as much as you can and hopefully it should free itself up if it persists then go talk to a physiotherapist would be my advice there um is it normal for the y press to end up hurting the muscles around my uh, ribs so it depends on how you define hurting here in terms of so people often forget that our, our ribs are actually coated in muscles. We have two major muscles that kind of pass along the ribs. You have your um, latissimus dorsi, your lat muscles of the back. They also come around the rib cage and play a role in moving the rib cage. Then under your armpit, kind of along your ribs here, you have your serratus anterior is another muscle. And then also between each of your ribs, you actually have muscles then as well, your intercostal muscles between the ribs. So when doing a white press, you can get expansion and contraction of those muscles going on. So it could simply just be um, muscle soreness, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness in those muscles because they're moving in a way that they haven't moved before and they're doing under under load. So as you're pressing, 
they're having to stabilize your torso, but they're also helping in the depressing movement then as well. So if it's a case that's just like muscle pain, like any other, that's perfectly fine and, and that's normal. And I wouldn't worry about it at all. If it's sharp shooting pain or anything like that, well, that's a different sort of pain. Um, I would then consult someone like that. That would be normal. But if it's just muscular, the same as what you would feel in your quads after a, a hard session, perfectly fine. I wouldn't worry about that. Um, it, it's funny when people get pains in either their chest, their ribs or their back, we tend to freak out, even though if you did a hard session on your legs and your legs were sore for a week after, you wouldn't think twice about it. But just when we do exercises that works our chest or ribs or our back, and then we get pain in a day or two afterwards, we tend to freak out. So it's the exact same. The muscles will um, be fatigued and be damaged and will have the same pain as anywhere else when you're training them. But your body will get used to it over time. Now, when I do a push-up, I notice my shoulders are not aligned. So they're trying to keep their shoulders aligned, but one tends to be a little lopsided to the other. And uh, the elbows are going out making a T rather than a triangle. How can you correct this? So you know the position you want to be in. So try over time to get, as you get stronger, get into that position. But what I will say is if one shoulder is higher than the other, which is common in people, um, there's nothing you can really do about it. It depends on why it is, but I imagine it's just anatomical variation. So we're all built slightly different and our bones connect into our joints at slightly different angles. That's why, especially with the hips, some people have um, the, what we call the Q angle and that's the angle of the legs as they come out of the hips. Some people's bones connect in at a wide angle and some are narrow and these can affect squatting patterns and how we move around the hip. Same thing happens at the shoulder. So if one shoulder is higher than the other and it can be through previous injury can happen or just can be a, a variation. Our bodies actually are not perfectly symmetrical. People often think our left and right side are symmetrical, but they're not. Um, our left side is going to be di slightly different to our right side. And that is perfectly normal. Just in some people, it's a bit more pronounced than others. So again, if you are feeling the exercise in the right place, if you are not having pain and you're able to do a reasonably good technique, even if the elbows are going out a little bit more, I wouldn't have a big issue with that. Good technique is not finite in terms of what good technique looks like for one person might be very different to what good technique looks like for another person. There's some key principles that we keep in, in place. Like say for a squat, you know, we want relatively flat back, you know, relatively upright posture, but but depending on femur length and proportions, some people will be bent over more than others. Some can squat deeper than others. Everyone is built differently. So what good technique looks like will vary a lot from person to person. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, did I have another question? No, no more questions came through, guys. So I'm going to open it up to the floor. If anyone has any questions they would like to ask, uh, please please shoot so you can either unmute yourself and ask or just throw it in the chat whatever whatever you prefer uh, guys you're killing me here no one has a camera on i feel like talking to myself is, is anyone even happy enough to share their experiences so far we're coming towards the tail end of the challenge 
is there anyone is happy enough to talk about maybe your perceptions of what you thought strength training was going to be like coming into the challenge and your experiences up to now, uh, how you found it and was it what you expected or what have you learned about your, yourself and about strength training over the past few weeks? No? Oh, someone says, yeah. Sorry, my laptop camera doesn't work. No problem. I really struggled this week with the workout and thought I would cope better by week four. Is this normal Normal to really struggle through the sets? Yes. Um, so, again, this week four, as I said in, in that graph, I'll just stop sharing my screen here. So, week four, as I said, we've been building up week on week to this week. And uh, it, it's funny. So you have your fitness in terms of you are getting fitter week on week because you, your body's adapting and getting stronger. But you also have fatigue building up week on week. So fatigue masks fitness in terms of your body has got stronger and is adapting. But since fatigue is building up week on week, you, your expression of that fitness um, isn't there. As in, you don't feel fresh. And to be honest, this week, you should feel sluggish. You should, the sessions are going to feel harder. And how you know you need a week off, you should feel like you need this week off in week five or this easier week five if you've done it right up now. Because even if you take, uh, for the extreme of elite athletes, we don't train hard into the competition. We give them a taper. So for the, say, seven to 10 days before a massive tournament, they're doing light training. Because they've trained hard for months or weeks coming into the event, and they've built up that fatigue. So we need to get a, dissipate and get rid of that fatigue. So we give them a week off. So what you will find is in week four, you're going to feel a bit shit in terms of, yes, it's struggling. The sets, the weights will feel heavy. You'll struggle through it, but you'll find next week when we do the easy week, the fatigue goes down and your fitness that you've built up over the last four or five weeks, you're able to express it then and you'll feel really good after that. Um, so yeah, someone else there. I've also struggled this week. Tonight's session was tough, although I'm coming down with a cold and sleep has been poor. And these are just some of the other factors, yeah, that can affect your training. Sleep has a massive effect. Um, so someone there is cycling good or bad for someone who has arthritic knees? So again, you'd want to do this in, in con consultation with your um. GP or with your physiotherapist but generally movement is good and we want to keep a joint moving even if it's arthritic we don't want to avoid movement cycling is good because we're getting a large range pardon me a lot of motion a lot of movement but it's unloaded you're not getting the banging on the ground from the uh, treadmill you would get from walking or running so for arthritis lifting can be quite good cycling or swimming something that can take away that um hard impact which we often see can aggravate arthritic knees so yeah movement is good exercise is good and cycling can be good um i seem to be getting worse with my push-ups instead of stronger better looking to see if i can improve next week yeah and again this can be a product of fatigue building up um even my, myself with my own training tonight i, I was in the gym and squats if you go actually on my Instagram, if you go over there, it was heavy squats, but 
my week, I mean, my week four now as well of my current block felt shit, felt very, very shitty. The numbers weren't too bad. The strength I was pushing was good. But again, just feel drained. But then if I took a week off, I went back in, I'd have a great session. And the same, this is the difference with strength training in terms of we put ourselves into a hole so that we can recover and come out to a higher level. And, and that's what we're doing. Um, so it's a bit counterintuitive, but that's what we need to do. We train, training builds up fatigue. When we then take a little time off, fatigue goes away, performance goes up. And perform, by performance, I mean the amount of weight you can lift or whatever the push-ups are. So I imagine you will start to see it next week now and the week after, hopefully. Everything will start coming to fruition. message i do four workouts of this challenge but i also do cardio for half an hour every morning uh, is it too much if a if don't do cardio on mornings i can't have productive day or can't be focused at work um so again with everything uh, there's a good expression that the poison is in the dose everything can be a poison and it's the dose is the thing so Four strength workouts or three strength workouts and one other of the workouts a challenge. That's brilliant. You're getting everything done. Cardio for half an hour every morning. It depends on the intensity. If you're killing yourself every morning with real high intensity cardio, yes, that's probably too much. You don't need to be doing that. But if just light, moderate intensity cardio, you don't feel that it's um, making you really tired and you feel that it's waking you up and making you productive for the day, that's perfect. Um, but again, where people make the mistake of thinking every session to do either in the gym or cardio has to be at 100% effort. It doesn't. The majority of our training should be actually sub-maximal, just nice tipping along, getting stuff done. Yeah, no, you don't need to be killing yourself every day, uh, Zara. What I would say is pick, you say if you're doing, say if you want to do it every morning, again, I take one or two days off, maybe at the weekend, take them off. But if it's Monday to Friday, do two hard days. So say Tuesday and Thursday or whatever it is, two mornings out of the week, I'm going to go really hard on those sessions, test myself. But the other three sessions have the moderate. Take uh, the pedal off. You can still do cardio. You're still going to feel just as productive and focused, but um, your body will thank you because, again, it's not sustainable to be doing three or four workouts in the gym and then also five, six, seven days a morning, seven mornings, of what or whatever it is of cardio that's far far too much um and in the long term would put you at risk of what we call relative energy deficiency syndrome reds and can lead to menstrual dysfunction bone dysfunction and stuff in the long term not saying that's going on but that is associated with training too hard too often if you're doing killing yourself every morning i would say far far too much and what you might find is by taking a few of these easier sessions the two sessions a week that you then push hard, you're able to push harder because it's only for those two. So have those as your performance sessions you can say where you test yourself, but the other three are just keeping the wheels moving along, moderate intensity, not killing yourself. And you might find you actually make more progress then because the body is able to adapt. Uh, Dina, I always get lower back pain, uh, training legs, but when I finish the training, revoking goes training, the pain goes away and we're still okay to carry on or not doing any damage please um so 
lower back pain again is it's it's a, it's a strange one so i would say if it's just mild discomfort nothing too severe up to two three four out of ten in terms of pain scale and it's going away straight away afterwards and it's not persistent then that's uh, fine i imagine that's usually just a little bit of lower back stiffness um, might be uh, aggravating some nerves there while you're training that you feel the little bit of a pinch or pain, but it doesn't sound like you're doing any any damage if the it's a low intensity pain or discomfort. And again, over time, you might find that as you get better at training the legs, that the lower back tends to um, unstiffen and the pain starts to subside and go away. So again, just monitor it, be careful with it. Um, but generally, we don't want to avoid exercise unless unless we have to so you should be okay there we see the same thing with running i don't know if anyone has experienced with running but when you start back into it after a while lower back stiffness is usually a big issue but then as your body adapts over the first few weeks and months the lower back stiffness tends to to go away so it can be something similar there so just keep an eye on it okay um i struggle with a hip hinge and my lower back starts really hurt. Are there any exercises to improve this or avoid pain? Or it's just a case of practicing movement to get it right. I can do it, but I have to really focus to not arch my back. So yeah, I think it's just a case of practice. Like movement is a skill and weight training is, is a skill. Um, so you're always trying to, to get a, a, a better technique. So you've said it yourself there in terms of, you can do it, but really have to focus to not arch my arch my back. So that's the thing. It can be, as you said, as Emma says correctly there, it can be a weak core, or it could be just you need to practice and get more used to the movement. The fact that you can do it when you focus shows that you're not limited. It's not a limitation that you know you can't do it. You can, and you've shown yourself you can do it. So you just need to practice that. When we start a new skill, there are different phases of skill development. So you get through the different levels of motor learning and you go from, you know, being consciously having to think about a movement to becoming unconscious about it. For example, when you first teach a child to brush their teeth, they have to really think about the movement and get coordinated. For all of us now, well, at least I hope for all of us, we brush our teeth without thinking. We Our motor skills are finely tuned that that movement does not require any conscious taught from us so you will get to the same place with your exercises that you'll be able to perform it without arching your back um unconsciously um so the lower back is getting hurt when you're arching or bending over so that is that is the issue there so we'll just have to practice that and as you get stronger then as well it'll be a combination of practicing the movement and you getting stronger and your core getting stronger over time and you will hopefully see the improvement there but again just practice it, slow it down, practice it, and then focus on getting it, it, it right. A lot of people make the mistake with the hip hinge, with RDLs, Romanian deadlifts, or any um, hip hinge movement, that they tend to just bend from the, the back and bend the spine, where the focus of what we're actually trying to do is push the hips backwards. So when you're doing a hip hinge, don't think about, I need to bend over. Think about, I need to drive my hips back, and even try standing six inches in front of a wall and touching your bum off the wall because that can be a good cue that instead of focusing on bending forward, I'm focusing on driving my hips back. And if my bum doesn't touch the wall, 
then I'm probably not driving my hips back far enough. It can give just a little external cue for us to gauge whether we're doing it properly or not. So hopefully that helps and some ideas for you there. And anything else? Anyone else have any burning questions, guys? I look like I'm boring you there, Nikki. No, no, no. I came off cam camera just because I didn't want you to think you were on your own. I um, I hate it when this. <laughs> but I will. I, I will. I have got one quick question actually. Tonight, um, doing the the push, the arms. So, in say we were doing um, front raises. Hmm. I'm. I can do like, if I use a certain weight, I feel that my form is really good. I can lift my arms up and come down slowly. If I though, if I then up my weight, um, I can still do it, but I'm say I'm not bringing my arms down. So and my arms are coming down a lot faster. My form isn't mm -hmm. great. Would you stay on the lower weight? Do you reckon you're doing, you're getting stronger by doing a lot you know, better form on a lower weight than pushing it and your form's not great. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Because, and and that's an important thing. You want to standardize the form that you keep the form the same, mm -hmm. high level of form. And because the thing is, if you're lifting at a four kilo weight and then you go up to six with bad form, have you really got stronger? Because it's not the same mm -hmm. technique. It's not like for like. Um where the big issue tends to come in, and it's the same with front raises and, and these exercises, what, what is the weight, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, the weight so that like, you like, good? Yeah, so on the front raises, I can do really well on four kilogram. Hmm. But then if I just go up to the five, I can just tell, I can still do it, but I'm not bringing them down so slowly. Okay. Um, I'm more chucking them up and then really... It just, I can do it, but I just wondered if, um, I really, I want four and a half. That's what I feel like. Yeah, that's what I, I was going to say. <laughs> that, that's difficultly because when we think about it, people say, oh, five to four, it's not a massive jump. It's a 25% increase in load. Mm -hmm. It yeah, might be only one kilo, but relatively it's 25%. So that's, if you could squat a hundred kilos, it's the same as right now do 125. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't make that jump. It's in mm -hmm. anything else. So what you can do is um, either hold something that's 500 grams in, try mm -hmm. get a, what we call microwave or get something around the house. That's an extra couple of hundred grams and hold that with the dumbbells. So then you go to maybe 4.2, 4.3 kilos, whatever it may be, or go up to the five and just do less reps. If you can do your full 10 reps, whatever it is, with your four kilos, go up to the five and say, okay, I'm going to just do five reps and focus okay, on getting yeah. it done. And what you can do is you don't have to use the same weight for every set in terms of say you're doing three sets of the four kilos and that's great. You can do all the next week, say I'm going to do one set of the five kilos for five mm -hmm. reps. And then I'm going to drop back for set two and three to the four kilos. Yeah. Then that's the, what I did. That's yeah. what I did tonight, but I just, I yeah. must admit, I was trying to do with the fives. I was trying to do the same amount of reps, but actually that's, mm. that, that makes sense. If I should have slowed down and concentrated and just yeah. did like five really good reps. Five really so, good yeah. reps. And then yeah. the next week, six, because you can do five really good reps and then 
Okay, set two mm. and three, do 10 with the four kilos. Then the next session, try for an extra six or seven, try to get six or seven reps with a good, or do two sets of five yeah. good reps. And then slowly just gauge the progress up slowly over time. Because you can't, four to five kilos is a 25% increase. And for mm. three or four sets, that's a huge jump to make. So yeah, you nice. have to think of it relatively. Brilliant. Thank you very much. No problem at all, Nikki. Maria, I'm running on the treadmill. Uh, you could still turn on the camera, Maria. I'm sure everyone would like to see it. Uh, I want to know if activating glutes actually does wake up your muscle or that is just an urban myth. I use I my quad. Oh. I, I have my camera on now too. Nikki oh. skills is into it. <laughs> You're not on your own. Yeah, I was just wondering. I don't. I'm, I haven't made all your sessions. So I, I'm sorry if you've talked about this, but so like, I have lazy muscles. Apparently, I've been told this. I, mm. I mean, like, I know I don't have great glutes, and so I've always been told that you know, like, activate your glutes before you run. Or, but I don't understand why telling your muscles to switch on. Why they wouldn't just switch on? Or is that like actually a thing or is it a myth? It's 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 a bit of both. Um so when it comes to lazy muscles, like the move as in position and movement dictates what muscles are going to work. For example, if I bend my arm this way, that's my bicep is doing that work. Whether I feel that it's the bicep or not, or even if I had lazy biceps that's the only muscle that can move my arm in that way. So if your hips are moving this way, the glutes are doing a lot of that. Or if your leg is moving backwards, your hips are extending, the glutes are involved. Now, depending, everyone is met up a, a, a little bit different that some people, yes, will get more glute activation than others compared, but your glutes are there. What the idea where the myth kind of came from is if you do these glute activating exercises before a session, well, you're fatiguing your glutes a little bit before you start. So then if you do squats, you might feel them more because they're already a bit tired. So people then perceive that as, well, therefore, they must be working harder and I'm getting better glute growth or whatever. But that being said, by getting a muscle in the warm up, by making it work, we do. So all our muscles work by a signal is obviously sent from our brain down through our spine and goes to the muscle. We can warm that pathway up that the brain gets slightly better at firing to muscle. So you, you can learn to use the muscles better and learn to feel them, them better. And that mind to muscle connection can lead to improved um, muscle growth and uh, ability to use it. But again, it's the terminology people use. If you're running, if you're squatting, the glutes are working. There's no way, it's not a thing that you're using all quads and the glutes aren't working. They are. Um, but yeah, you doing the activating stuff can be a better way of, of learning to feel the um, glutes. Because these say the band exercises, they're good that you can feel where the muscles are and you build up that mind-muscle connection. So then when you're performing the exercise, you can get better at squeezing that muscle. Um, say, especially in something like a hip thrust. A lot of people don't know how to what it feels like when the glutes work properly. So these activation things can make you better at, at performing the movement. And since you get better at performing the movement, that leads to better muscle growth. So the, it's, the little activation exercises themselves don't lead to the glute growth or the glute improvement, but they help you to feel 
what the muscle is like better. So you tend to perform the exercises better. The, the exercises that do lead to glute activation, your hip thrust, your squat, your squat. And then that leads to an improvement in, in uh, glute development. So does that make sense? I hope I explained that properly. Yeah, no, it does. Thank you. No it's the sort of thing that, yeah, could be a rumor or could be true. So appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks. And it's something physios, a lot of physios just throw out there and it doesn't really make sense when you logically break down into it. Yeah. It's an easy thing just to say to people because then you can just give them little exercises and that's your job done. <laughs> I think that's what happened, <laughs> but this <Yeah>. was helpful. <laughs> no problem. Now, anyone else have anything you want to chat about, guys? I'll ask another question, actually. Yeah. Well, right. you, so the other thing I was, I play a lot of water polo, so I use my shoulders a lot. And when we we're doing the pull down thing with the towel that we mm -hmm. do, so I've been told that I have winging scapulas and that I need to yeah. strengthen the little muscles. So I was trying to think to kind of keep my shoulder back more to activate the small ones. Is that the right way to be thinking about it? Because I think that's about movement to help the prevent the scapulas moving so much. Yeah, so the, the scapulas are another one where people make a lot of misconceptions because they are designed to wing in terms of people tend to get an idea that they shouldn't move, but they are designed to move wing out and wing back in. Now, what I will say in water polo swimming, uh, there is, and depending on the, the nature of the stroke, shoulder issues tend to be a big thing. Shoulders is the um, big problem area more so. Now, I'm not as familiar with water polo, but I'm familiar with the essence of swimming. Um, and the shoulders tend to be the, the, the big issue. What gets a lot of work is kind of this downward movement because that's where obviously you're, you're working. So you get kind of lash movement, shoulder work. The upper back doesn't tend to get worked as much and we can get kind of overdevelopment of some areas. So to teach those scapulas, you want them that they can move through their full range of motion. And the full range of motion is... If you think your scapula is, if you reach, people will reach as far forward as you can. So if you were reaching as far as you can to grab something, we see the scapula will wing out to allow the arm to come out. And then you can pull back to try to drive the elbows um, behind as far as you can. So that's the full motion of the um, scapula. Now, the when we train, most people train even back movements. Everything stays stationary in terms of they go to there and to there. So that's the movement where the scapula doesn't, they just go to straight arm. They'd never go to this kind of extended reaching place. And that's for good reason, because if you do that with a dumbbell or a barbell, you can put stress on your lower back. So what I would recommend to be able to move the scapula as far as you can, do you have a resistance band? Yeah. Yeah. So if you put a resistance band, you know the exercise where you would pull it to you. So you do say a row with the resistance band. If you can do it with a, a chair or something in front of your chest, because what that does, we want to obviously not bend the spine forward or twist the spine while we're doing it, but we want the scapula to go as far forward as we can. So by keeping something in front of our chest, that keeps our body straight and allows us that we can go with the resistance band and really right. lean into it, but the chest support, make sure that we're not doing any risk to our back. 
So you can really stretch it out, pull as far back as you can, try to pull the elbows behind you, squeezing those scapula, and then forward. Because most people will go to here where you want to reach, allow the shoulders to round, reach forward. That'll bring the scapula out and then pull back as far as you can. And that will strengthen your scapula through its full range of motion and make it more stable in those overhead positions. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. No worries. T-Bird, no questions from me either, but agree your advice and guidance is really helpful. Well, thank you very much, T-Bird. That will hopefully inflate my very fragile ego a little bit. Um, okay, guys, any, any other questions? Are we all happy? What are we thinking? Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, a pleasure, guys. Um, there will be sore bodies this week. This will be a tough week of training. But remember that uh, next week is the easy week then, and you'll start to reap all the benefits then. Again, my um, just quickly, my Instagram and Twitter are there. My email is just David at Synapse Performance as well. This uh, name down here, .ie. Any questions at all, feel free. My DMs are open. Feel free to shoot me across either an email or a DM with any specific questions you might have. Um, and if you're all happy, guys, I wish you a very good evening. Enjoy the week's training, and I will chat to you all again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, guys. See ya. Thank you.